Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's revenge? Daniel San, you look revenge that way. Start by digging to grave. Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish, just like grip. Well, hello there, guys and gals. Jack here with uh, the beginning of another week of Miyagi Mornings. And uh, I thought this would be a good day to lead off a week with some discussion on getting what you want out of life. A lot of what I teach and a lot of what I've taught over the last 13 years of doing the Survival Podcast and running you know, uh, a YouTube channel and a video channel and stuff like that has been about this. It's something that I talk about all the time. And I was just kind of mulling over what to talk to you guys about today when I was out this morning taking care of the ducks' water, checking on the gardens, everything like that, and realizing, like, you know, I, I do something a lot of people throw the phrase around a lot, and that is I live life on my own terms. My life is on my own terms. There's, there's, it's an incredible blessing to have gotten here. And what it made me think of is how many times I've, I've had this experience in real life, not, not just in online forums and you know email and stuff like that, where a person will say something and be like, you know what I want to do? I want to live my life on my own terms. And generally that will come up because we're talking about you know kind of the, the whole ethos of, of the Survival Podcast and, and the way that I've tried to demonstrate that over the years, how to do that. And I don't mean to be mean when I do this, but I'll often throw things at people that are designed for their benefit but maybe aren't the most comfortable things when they're first said. So my, my number one response to that is, that's great. What are your terms? That's great. What are your terms? And usually you get this blank stare, kind of a deer-in-the-headlight look like, <gasps> like, oh, my God, he asked me what my terms were, and I don't know. That's okay. Most people don't know. And then what comes next is what I would refer to as a great start. The person realizing the uncomfortable nature of making a definitive statement, I want life on my own terms, then being told, that's excellent. What are those terms? And not having an answer realizes, well, shit, I better say something because it's an awkward silence. And it's one of those questions that when I ask it, I refuse, it's, it's like a closing question in sales, like a close, a sales close. When you say something like, well, can we get a PO or can I get you to sign the contract or whatever in sales, the rule is you don't say anything until they fully either execute the contract or they, uh, they start asking questions that you have to answer, right? So you shut up. And so there's other places in life, and that's one of them, where it's a question like, the question is not designed to make me look good. It's designed to make you think, I shut up. So since I won't say anything, they have to say something. And it, this is done consciously, and what starts to happen is a whole big list of things they do want and they don't want in their life. And that's a great way to define the terms, but that's not your terms. And that will never get you there. It's only a starting place. So I'll, I'll usually say to that person once they kind of, you know, I, I want no debt, I want to, you know, do a job that I love that I would do anyway for free, I want enough money to never worry about money, etc. It's great, why don't you sit down and get a piece of paper and put a big cross across the top of it 
and on one side to put wants and on other sides put don't wants and start working that list. That'll that'll be a good roadmap to get you to your terms. It won't be your terms. Because your terms are going to require certain certain things. They're going to require a certain amount of money. They're going to require lifestyle adjustments and changes, etc. And as soon as you start to do this, then you can start quantifying. Well, how much does that cost to do that? So how much income do I need? Um, how much investment do I need to produce X percent of that ongoing cash flow so that I can get into a point of semi-retirement young? Instead of working my whole life and fully retiring when I'm old, doesn't it make sense to like work really hard and by the time you're like 40, be like halfway retired? You still have income in, you're still saving for that long-term retirement, but there's enough cash flow out of your life that your life's funded or partially funded. How do you know what that looks like if you don't actually get the numbers? And I've seen the same phenomenon in so many places where it's not really the same thing, but it's the same thing. It's In the words of Tommy Chong, one of my favorite phrases, it's the same but different, man. So a person will say something like, you know, I'm going to make enough money with a backyard flock of ducks Uh, by selling eggs to pay for insert thing here. Well, what's that look like? They don't know. Like, okay, so what do you think you can sell eggs for? What, what are they? What are they? What do you get for them in your market? What's it going to cost you to produce one egg? See, if you know those two things, like, is it marketable? And if it is, what it sells for? And how much my cost of goods sold will be? Then you have a number, and then you can really quickly say, well, if I need $700 in profit a month, I need you know Y amount of eggs. Y equals number here. And then you can look at that and go, yeah, that works. That's a lot of shit to do for $700. Bucks. There's other ways to make that money. And then you make a fully informed decision about the path forward because you don't really want a backyard full of ducks if that's where you're coming at it from. Maybe you do. Right, And maybe there's other ways. Maybe you have less ducks and you don't try to make your money off of that. Maybe you just try to get them to pay for themselves because you want the ducks because you want to eat eggs and you want to have ducks like me. Right? Um, you determine the financial goal more dispassionately. Like, yeah, that, that works or that doesn't work, and then you know the answer. And so that, that goes right into living life on your own terms and defining them first and then back engineering what does the lifestyle look that gets me there? What do I have to give up right now? What do I have to do right now? And what is my timeline to that place? It's really simple. And it, 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 it's no different than looking at how, how do ships every day, giant ships, captain and crew, leave a place like Shanghai, China, They go across the ocean and they land in San Francisco. And they turn around and they go back. With all the things in the middle that could be wrong. All the, usually that ship pulls into port. It's already scheduled to dock before it leaves its old port. And it, they, it arrives at that place at the right time 99.9% of the time. Sometimes there's some delays and adjustments to the weather or things. But in general, that shipping is very regularly timed. How do they do that? Well, they know exactly where they are exactly where they're going, how fast the ship moves, the route that they're going to take, and because of all that information, an experienced captain can plot the course and say, we're going to be there Tuesday at 3 o'clock. So simple that is. So why don't we do that in our lives? And I'll tell you, and this is the most important thing I'm going to tell you today. We don't want to know the answer. We don't want to be real about the answer. Because it's easier to dream than to be real. It, and we don't want to pop our bubble with this little bubble that we have around us of this dream. And there's good 
in dreaming because it keeps you motivated. But if the dream is not realistic, then the dream is more of like, you know, if I win the lottery someday, I'm going to own a Caribbean island, right? Like there's nothing wrong with that, but it's not, you're not going to get there. Or it's going to take some sort of weird coincidence of luck that you're going to get there, right? These are concrete, attainable things that most of us really want. If you say, I want to live my life on my own terms, I promise you there's a way to get there. I promise you. And there's a way to get mostly there in five to ten years, solidly there in 15. And unless you are really old and don't have much time left, or your dreams or your, your terms are ridiculous, like I want to be a 500,000 gazillionaire or something like that, most people can have a life on their own terms absolutely within 15 to 20 years. Whoa, 15 to 20 years, that's a long time. Well, it's a lot less than the 30 to 40 years the average person works to retire with no money, isn't it? And I'm not saying you can't go faster, but I'm saying you're, when you baseline it the first time, you're going to end up looking out at a 15 to 20-year plan. Well, no one wants to do that. Everybody wants to dream about someday, and so someday's like this carrot, the donkey's following, but is the donkey ever going to get the carrot? Maybe when he's old and he's about to fall over, the person that's lured him with the carrot the whole time will take some pity on him and take the nasty rotted carrot and break it off the thing and actually let the donkey have the carrot. That's how most people retire. They never live life on their own terms. In fact, they find out that this dream that they had of someday living life on their own terms as a retiree is the time where they have the least influence and control in society. And since they have just enough money to survive on, they don't really have the lifestyle they want. They end up dependent on their children or friends or organizations or things like that. They don't have the golden years that they were promised because they waited too long to start the process to get there. And they've been lulled into believing, hey, you know, just throw money in your 401k and don't worry about it. What's the process? Where the process was a lot more proactive if you really wanted to live life on your own terms. So if you just start defining the place you want to live, what does it look like? What is there? How much land is there, etc.? You know, what are the people like around it? All of a sudden, it starts to become very clear that, hey, here's some places like that. Here's what property costs there. Now, do I really want that? Do I want the sacrifice? Or do I need to adapt and adjust? Because I love when somebody says, none of my terms are negotiable. If God was looking at you in the face when you said that, he would laugh so hard, God would give himself a headache. If you said none of your terms are negotiable, all your terms must be negotiable at all times because that is how you actually get most of what you want instead of trying to get all of you want and getting none of it. So the real reason people put this process off is they don't want to look at it. They want it to be comfortable and they want it to feel good. I don't want you to do that. Not because I don't want you to be comfortable and not because I don't want you to feel good, but I want you to actually get what you want. And you're not going to do that until you put down concrete goals. And I don't, you know, mean like if you just write that one day you're going to be the, the leader of, you know, the, the free world, you will be, or some stupid karmic, you know, misappropriated law of attraction BS. That's not what I mean. What I mean is if you actually sit down and do the work and you define what you really want, anybody with an IQ over 90 can reverse engineer, learn how to use something like Excel, and design a model that gets there. Anybody can. I mean anybody. But will you? What it's going to involve is taking the dream that is here and putting it out here and putting a concrete model here that leads to it. 
That's what you're going to have to do if you want to get there. With that, has been Jack with another episode of Miyagi Mornings. I'll be back tomorrow with something totally different. Well, hello, folks. Welcome to another episode of Miyagi Mornings. Is uh, Charlie Daniels, the canine, joins us. He's hanging out behind me here. He's getting ready to lay down on his bed for those watching the video version of this. Ah, so what are we going to talk about today? I, this is a subject that I think we'll be talking more and more and more about going into the future. Uh, we're going to talk about how Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies eventually, anyway, will play into retirement accounts. And this started from a question on MeWe. A individual has uh, like 8000 bucks sitting in a 401k at a job that he has left. There's now multiple options. One would be to roll it into a like-kind IRA. So if it's a conventional, it would go into a conventional. If it's a Roth, it should go into a Roth. Anybody that knows me knows that I would tell you if you have a choice when you set up a retirement account and you don't do a Roth, then you're either ill-informed or the person informing you and telling you to do it was ill-informed. Don't ever do that. Roth is, yes, you don't get to take the deduction this year, but then you never pay tax on the money ever. And I like never pay tax money. That's the only reason you'll get me to put my money into one of these accounts since both options exist now. I would rather pay tax on the income rather than tax on the income inside the investment over time because, well, math. Um, so whatever version you have, you could roll into that. He's thought about doing something else. He's thought, you know what, the way Bitcoin's performing and the long-term nature of, of crypto assets, why don't I liquidate this account and pay the fund, you know, pay the penalties on it and just buy Bitcoin? Hmm. I don't like that. I don't like that. Now, I'm going to temper this with, if what you have is a Roth 401k, and, and, and when you fill out the paperwork, you do it accurately, you will only pay interest and penalties on the gain. Okay? And that might make this doable. You'll have to run the math for yourself. But I still don't like it because you're giving them your money. Because you took the money prior to the time you're supposed to take it. So I don't like doing that. Um... But maybe, you know, that's an individual decision. What I want to talk more about is, does Bitcoin and other crypto assets belong in your tax-deferred or tax-exempt retirement strategy? And the answer to me is yes and no. We just have to be clear about what we're doing. I'm also going to tell you that I tend not to talk about things that I don't absolutely know about. And I am going into a world where some of this is what I think versus what I know. And I'm going to try to be clear when I'm telling you what I know versus what I think. But just assume if I didn't specifically say so, it's, it's my opinion. All right. So this is an opinion, but it is based on fact. My view is that when it comes to forms of wealth that are largely anonymous and can be totally within your control, in many instances you do not want to put them into something like an IRA or a SEP or anything else like that. And the reason is you've taken one of the most private assets and you've made it as public as possible, and unless you can come up with clear tax advantages to doing so, you, you, you probably shouldn't. An example would be, I want to do a physical metal IRA because the guy on TV said so. Okay. So what you want to do is take wealth that you could hold completely anonymously and until you sell it, pay no taxes on it whatsoever. And you could physically trade it or physically hand it down with no paperwork. You want to take wealth that is completely and totally anonymous and you want to make it public to the government that you have it. 
that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense to me. However, when would it make sense? Because this is going to have a lot to do with how we look at, let's say, Bitcoin inside an IRA, which is going to become more and more possible. What if you already had the money in the IRA, and that was the money you had to buy silver with, and you either used that money or you didn't get to buy silver? Personally, within an IRA, I want my assets to take advantage of the tax-free or tax-deferred status to remain as liquid as possible. So if you told me that, I would be like, well, then what you want to do is inside that IRA, you want to buy an ETF in silver. But if you don't hold it, it's not yours. Okay, this is this has worked for 25 years. It's going to keep working. Yes, I know they manipulate the silver and gold market. That's why you want to buy the physical metal in the first place. But what that would allow you to do is take that money, do nothing with it, pay no penalties on it, buy your silver, and when silver spikes and you want to take some of the profits, sell it with no tax consequences. Because until you sell a commodity, you don't owe tax. I've tried to explain this about Bitcoin to people that freak out about KYC. Let's say you want went on... Coinbase today, like one of the most public exchanges there is. You did your KYC, you wired $100,000 into your account, and you bought $100,000 worth of Bitcoin. You owe no taxes. You transfer that money to your to your own non-custodial wallet. You still owe no taxes. You haven't sold it. Coinbase sends your customer records to the IRS along with a picture of you petting a dog wearing a Bitcoin sweater while you're wearing a Bitcoin t-shirt holding up a thing that said Bitcoin 10x, I'm a Bitcoin millionaire, and you know how much you owe in taxes? None. You only owe money on crypto assets when you exchange them at a profit, and you can take a loss if you exchange them at a loss. If Bill gets $10 in Bitcoin today, and he spends his $20 in Bitcoin tomorrow, say it doubles overnight, Bill owns tax on $10. Possibly he owes it on the original $10 if he received it, you know, publicly as a form of compensation, as a profit, right? That's how it works. And it doesn't matter if you spend it directly. It doesn't matter if you convert it into another crypto asset. And it doesn't matter if you turn it into dollars. The IRS treats all of those things the same. You have executed a trade in one form or another, and you've realized a gain or a loss. However, if your plan is, I'm going to put it in my retirement account, and I'm going to hold it, until 2030, 2035, something like that, and I'm not going to be trading it, there would be no tax consequences anyway. This mitigates one of the reasons to move something like a crypto asset into an IRA when it becomes fully and wholly possible. Here's where I'm going to go in a world where I, I'm telling you what I think versus what I know. There are self-directed IRAs right now where you can set them up yourself and hold Bitcoin inside of them. I don't know a lot about them. I'm not going to pretend that I do. But what I would say is if I were going to set one up, I would not do it without help. And I would deeply research the people helping me to make sure every I is dotted, every T is crossed, and I don't get a bill by the government that says this does not qualify. All right, so I'm going to leave that on the shelf for now. Because here's where we are going. This is not fact as in it hasn't happened yet, but I'm going to tell you where we are going. We are going into a place, by the end of the year, there will be multiple Bitcoin ETFs. These are going to be funds that directly hold Bitcoin as a custodian for their clientele. They'll take some money in management fees for doing that. Uh, that's what you do when you go into publicly traded assets. You pay a fee to some fund manager or something like that. And what it's going to do is it's going to open the market for all of that IRA, 401k, etc. money. Yeah. And I think that would make sense. I think it would make a lot of sense for the average person to say, you know what, I've worked really hard. I've put a lot of money away. I have you know, mid-cap, small-cap. They tell me I'm diversified. 
but literally I'm holding nothing but stocks in companies denominated in dollars. That does not make diversification. So I'm going to throw 10% of my holdings, or more or less, up to you, into a Bitcoin ETF and effectively hold Bitcoin in my retirement account and have this in a, a situation where it's not taxed now or it's not taxed ever, depending on the form. Oh, that makes perfect sense. And whether you do it or not, shitloads of people are going to do it, and it's going to drive the shit out of the price of Bitcoin and Ethereum, because that's going to get its own ETFs up. There may be some other crypto assets, but those are going to be the two that get approved out of the gate. Bitcoin this year, Ethereum maybe this year. That is going to happen. It is going to happen. It is going to happen. The Fed is dragging their feet on this. They know that eventually they're going to have to concede and do it. Because if you look at the ETF world, when they say, you know, we're protecting people, it's volatile. Every freaking commodity on the planet except cryptocurrency has an ETF approved by the United States government. Like shit that's way, like soybeans have ETFs. Right? If you can come up with something that people trade on a market, there's an ETF for it except Bitcoin. So they also just approved the Coinbase IPO. So, That's going to happen. When that does, that money's going to flood there. So when would I use a retirement account to purchase Bitcoin or crypto assets or whatever? One would be if I have a outlet. Let's say that I'm the guy that says, you know what? I mostly just buy and hold Bitcoin long term. That's what I do. But I want to take like five grand, ten grand, something like that, and I want to trade it. If I can get that into a, a Roth IRA where I pay no tax, where I have freedom to trade and not pay taxes on the gains, and I can build the long-term wealth with trading because I'm a good trader? Yeah. yeah. If I'm a big-time trader, I want to move as much of it into that Roth IRA or, or whatever as I can because now I can trade with impunity without paying any taxes. But you don't have to pay tax on Bitcoin. Yes, you do. And there's a point at which if you're doing things like this, you either get into a world of complete black market world for yourself and you're at risk, or you come above board with at least some of the things that you're doing, right? Because it is easier to legally avoid paying taxation than it is to do it illegally. The, the 95% of your tax code tells you how not to pay the taxes the other 5% tells you you have to pay. Because the people that wrote the code for you don't want to pay taxes because they're not lawmakers, they're corporations. So if you learn to focus on the 95%, you can legally not pay the shit out of taxes, Right? You might still pay tax on some, but then all your money is available in the public to do what you will with because we're going to get into a place in the future where you're going to be able to make money in retirement by holding Bitcoin and not pay any taxes on it without any kind of retirement account. I'm not going to get into that today. I'm just going to tell you that there's a strategy for doing that that's becoming more and more doable over time because you'll never sell the underlying asset, therefore the gain is never realized, therefore there is no tax due. And this is the way you have to start thinking if you want to win in a world where the people set the rules, set the rules for themselves to do that, instead of thinking like most people do, which is like a, like a, like a beggar. Sir, sir, may I please defer some of my taxes on some of my money? Right? How about, can I please defer taxes on 95% of my money? Can I please not pay taxes on 80% of my money? Oh, please? I don't have to say please, right? You wrote it in the code. I'm going to follow that. So I do see this as a, as a trading strategy. And I do see it as a long-term strategy for any asset that you plan to liquidate for retirement income. In other words, your plan to actually make money from it is to sell it, convert it, and pay for stuff with it. Because that's when you pay tax on a crypto asset. The, the reality is Bitcoin is an incredible way 
to defer taxes almost infinitely for the holder. So if your plan is to hold Bitcoin, I'm only putting it in an IRA if I'm short on my contributions this year, and why not? So I, I know this is a little all over the map for you guys, but you, this is an emerging space where we have to make decisions with the information we have now and assumptions about what's going to happen next. However, regardless of whether or not you put this in an IRA or not, people are going to. Buy the freaking millions. Buy the freaking millions. When there is a true, like, it's not going to be like, you know, a grayscale Bitcoin trust. Like, gives you partial exposure to Bitcoin. But, like, when I look at the grayscale trust, for instance, this is the biggest, best-known way to get exposure to Bitcoin through a public asset now, which means it could be in your Roth IRA. Uh, they correlate about two-thirds to the performance of Bitcoin, meaning, uh, you know, if Bitcoin went up 300% in a time frame, then the grayscale trust went up about 200%. That's a 33% premium. Jack's not into paying 33% premiums. So if you had one-third the performance, you might be at net zero from the asset that should be up 30% roughly, right? Like, I no, I, I, I'm not doing that either. I'm not giving up that much performance. So I'm not putting my money in get grayscale, grayscale trust, right? However, lots of millionaires and billionaires are because they have huge amounts of money that, that is not in their name. See, billionaires don't hold their money in their name. They hold it in different investment funds and different trusts and different things like that. And all of those things have a charter, and the charter says, these are the things you can do with the money, and these are the things you can't do with the money. And the people controlling those, those trusts or other sources of funding can go rewrite the charter, but the entire process to get that done is going to take six months to 24 months for the average agency to, or group to do it. It would actually be easier to roll out a new thing. So, But you have all this money sitting in this old thing. So what do you do? You invest in places you can. You can buy publicly traded stocks. So if you want exposure to Bitcoin with that kind of funding, what do they do? They go in and they buy you know, Coinbase. They go in and they buy Tesla. They go in and they buy MicroStrategy. That's another thing you can do short term. Back to the original question. If I had $8,000 sitting in a 401k right now and I wanted Bitcoin in my life, would I liquidate pay the penalties, and buy Bitcoin. No. However, I'm in a totally different place in life than, well, every other person on the planet. We're all in our own place. We all live in our own world to a degree. I have a lot of Bitcoin. I have a lot of other crypto assets. I, and the people, you need silver. I, got, I had silver before you know what it was, okay? Yeah, I'm a long-term silver hodler as well, right? So I have well-diversified investments within the standard stock market, right? I have a good income. Like, so... I don't have to make that decision in reality. I can just say that's eight grand, leave it there. Um, eventually, they're going to give me a way to take some of my, my deferred money or my sheltered money and put it into Bitcoin directly. And when they do, then we'll figure out how much of it goes there. If you have none, you don't have any money to do it with, I understand the feeling, but I also would say this. Like if that eight grand is all you have, Throwing it into a speculative asset like Bitcoin is probably not the best thing to do, especially if you're going to give up a third of it, and now you're talking like six grand that you get to keep because they're going to penalize you for taking your own money out of a vehicle that you probably didn't fully understand when you put your money in there. Again, if this is a Roth and it hasn't performed all that well and you haven't had it for that long, it may be the case that you can free that money in any way that you want with a very small penalty, and that would be a little bit different. But... I think that everybody needs to be thinking about this dynamic right now in the crypto space. 
Because again, what you do inside your retirement style accounts, right, is irrelevant to what the market will do. And when this when this opens, and, and let me tell you why I'm so confident. There's multiple ETFs available to Canadian citizens right now. So is the United States going to sit by and not approve these funds while the Canadian government does? And then I want you to think about the difference in population between Canada and the United States. And I want you to think about the sophistication and the understanding of crypto investing in the United States versus Canada. And I want you to think about what the hell happens when these hundreds of billions, or dare I say trillions of dollars, all get a look at, hey, we can put a little bit over there. What you've seen happen in the crypto space so far, and this idea that, well, they're going to ban it. If you're saying that, you've been saying that for 12 years now, and it's time for you to wake up to reality. No, they're not. And now that we have this type of thing, now that we have publicly traded companies holding it on their balance sheet, now that we have publicly traded companies whose only business is cryptocurrency, you know those guys you're always bitching about, lobbyists? Well, for once, if you'd front run the damn thing and quit being a coward with your money, right? Because it amazes me, right? The person who has been putting 10% in their 401k for 15 years, doesn't even really know what they're holding, glances at their quarterly statement, maybe, and every every week their money just goes in there, oh, I think it's doing good. They don't even worry about it. And, and in, in, in reality, in most instances, they probably shouldn't. You know, I think you should reevaluate things once in a while and maybe move into another sector or whatever, but in, in general, that process works, right? They've rigged the game to make sure that it mostly works. But that same person will sit in him and haw about buying 300 bucks worth of cryptocurrency. How long have you been doing that? I don't know, man. It's up to y'all. But this is where we're going with this, and, and that's, I just wanted to kind of get that out today. That's what you have to think about. You're taking a completely, you know, an asset you have complete control over, and you're moving it into a place where there's eyeballs on it, probably more eyeballs than any other place it could be. There's not no reason to do it, but you need to know the reasons that you're doing it. Take care, guys. And if, if anybody can help me out with an expert, like an actual expert, not someone that, well, he did it. I mean, someone that actually knows what the hell they're doing with how you hold crypto and self-directed IRAs, I'd love to have them fill out my guest form at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Take care, guys. Well, hello there, guys and gals. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 83. Sometimes I'm not sure what the episode number is, but since I looked at my notes today, I am. It is 83. Um, we have a question today that really is more of an observation that is definitely a plea for help. Uh, it, this is another crypto topic. This will be uh, a briefer one than yesterday, and I'll just say... If you were following me on MeWe, you would have got a chance to vote on this today. So if you're like, damn it, Jack, I don't want two crypto topics in a row. Well, follow me on MeWe. The vote was overwhelming for this one. And I might tell you what it is. If you do crypto at all, you'll probably understand why. It's avoiding high Bitcoin fees when transferring specifically between exchanges. If you're moving Bitcoin from an exchange to like a non-custodial wallet where you don't have swap capabilities or whatever, you're going to eat the fee. That's part of taking custody of Bitcoin. However, there's a lot of this going on, specifically since I've been recommending, not even recommending, like saying you need to buy our pirate chain since October when it was $0.08. Cents. And I'm not saying you need to buy it now. I'm saying it's probably still a good buy now, but it's it's made of like 
3,000% run-up. And it was one of the very few times in the history of me talking about this since 2014 where I didn't say, hey, this is might be something you want to look at or I'm buying this. Like, It's very unusual for me to say, you need to buy this. But I did with that, and it created a lot of people wanting to buy it. And it's also, I think, the whole crypto space expanding this year has made people look at things like proof-of-stake coins, etc., And maybe wherever they're onboarding, in other words, they're bringing fiat in dollars and they're exchanging it for a thing, like the first thing they end up buying is Bitcoin. And then let's use R as a perfect example. So let's say that you want to buy R on Trade Ogre or you want to buy R on CoinX or you want to buy R on Changely, but your onboard platform is Coinbase. And so you go to Coinbase, you buy like a hundred bucks worth of Bitcoin, and then you send it over to uh, CoinX, and you notice that like it costs you nine or ten dollars. Now, if you send five thousand dollars and it costs you nine bucks, it's not really that big of an eat into what you're doing. But especially with these smaller transactions, sometimes with high network volume, these fees can really kind of ding you. Now, there are a lot of people out there saying a lot of stupid shit, and I think you people need to shut your mouth because clearly you're speaking in ignorance. Like, it costs $105 to send $5 worth of Bitcoin. I don't know where you get your bullshit from, but send it back. Uh, but when you're paying 10% on, on, a, on a transfer, And you don't always, but you might, depending on what's going on at the moment. And then compounding this problem, when you're sending money from Coinbase somewhere else, you don't get to say, like, look, I don't give a shit if this takes all day to happen. I want to pay the lowest fee available today. You get whatever they decide to do it at, which is generally market rate, which is going to be a bit higher. So I've received payments, for instance, for MSB, 100 bucks for three years in Bitcoin. And when I, you know, like, I get my 100 bucks, right? Or if Bitcoin goes up or down, I get a little more, a little less in the interim. But I can look at the transaction and see the fees like eight bucks, nine bucks. And that's, that's a premium of like 10%. I don't like seeing people have to do that. And I don't think for small payments, Bitcoin is really the way to go. It's also not the way to go when you're transferring. So let's walk through this, how you would reduce your fees. And if you saw the graphic, the thumbnail for this video, it says don't trip over Bitcoin to pick up Satoshis, which is the old saying of don't pick up, walk over, you know, step over dollars to pick up pennies. In other words, don't think you're getting around something by making less trades because of trading fees. Trading fees are incredibly cheap. So let's say you have Bitcoin, a couple hundred bucks worth of Bitcoin, and you want to buy R on CoinX. What most people do is send the Bitcoin to CoinX and then buy R with the Bitcoin. Don't do that. That's the most expensive way to do things. Pick a coin that you know is on the exchange you're targeting. Litecoin and Algo are two great coins to do that with. But no matter what, make sure that before you execute that trade, so you don't have to do another trade, make sure that that coin is on the target exchange and make sure whatever the minimum deposit is we'll come back to that in a second you're going to meet that minimum deposit for that coin it tends to vary by different coins some require you know if it's a cheap coin maybe one some require 0.01 some require 0.001 it all depends so make sure you read the print we're like so go like you're going to do the deposit and see what the minimum deposit is calculate make sure you have enough okay so then you you basically sell your bitcoin into, let's say, Algorand, which is very cheap and very fast to, to, to do. As soon as it's available in your Coinbase account, you go over to CoinX, you hit Deposit, Algorand, 
you get an address, and you put that address into Coinbase. You now pay something like a penny to ten cents in transfer fees. Yes, you created an additional trade. Yes, you paid a trading fee. That trading fee will absolutely be less than the transfer fee of Bitcoin. It's one of the more expensive cryptos to transfer right now. When your Algorand arrives over on CoinEx, you will find that you can't just swap Algorand into, um, uh, let's say, Pirate Chain, right? You can't. Okay, it's fine. It's okay. Sell it for U.S. dollar tether. You'll find that over there they have three boards, primary boards. You can do uh, buy with Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Tether. Why Tether? Because if you want to do something that you probably should, which is set a limit order, it's going to be much easier to calculate in your brain with it priced in dollars than in Bitcoin. Okay, So let's say that R is trading for $5.15 and you think it's going to drop to $4.90 today. So that's how you want to do your buy, because you want to get as much as you can. Now, you get your fully can-do a market order, and then it doesn't really matter if you use Bitcoin, Tether, or Ether as long. Again, check the board before you swap into that currency to make sure that that currency trades on that board. Sometimes you'll find a currency on an exchange only trades on, like, the Bitcoin board, or only trades on the dollar and Bitcoin board. It doesn't trade on the Ether board. So I don't know why you'd use Ether for this anyway. So you've done that now. You now have your currency in U.S. dollar, Tether, You can either directly just market buy whatever it's selling for, or you can set a limit order, and it's much easier to calculate with one side of the trade moving. What a limit order means is I'm willing to pay this much. So I'm willing to pay five bucks, and it's currently trading five dollars and fifteen cents. So when you send that order, you know what's going to happen? Nothing. Close your computer, and if you want to do this, you need patience. You close your computer and walk away for at least a day. And is it worth doing? It depends. How much are you buying? How many? They can calculate it. How many more? Like if you're going to get three more out of doing this, maybe it's not worth it. If you're looking to hold long, it doesn't really make that big of a difference. But you know, doing this over time, you can end up accumulating a lot more in that treasure chest. Once the trade executes and the trade clears, those are two different things. So you'll see trade executed. When you go to withdraw, it'll say withdrawable amount zero. Well, until enough confirmations come through, they're not going to let you take that money out. That prevents double spending. And then you can withdraw to your off-exchange wallet. What you've done now, going through it again really quick, you've gone to Coinbase. You have your Bitcoin that you've purchased for cash. You've converted it into something like Litecoin or Algo. You've sent it over to the other exchange. You've converted that into an, a fungible exchange asset, either Bitcoin or Dollar Teller. And if you're just doing a straight exchange, it doesn't really matter. right? If you're going to do market, it doesn't really matter. If you're going to do a limit order, use Tether. It'll be easier to, to manage. Then you've bought your, your final target currency, and you've moved it off. You've made one extra trade here. That one extra trade, probably on a small order, has saved you somewhere in the neighborhood of $8 to $10. If you're buying a low-priced altcoin that's like at around a buck, right? That's, that's $8 to $10 additional coins. If that coin makes a big run-up like you're anticipating, that could be a big deal. If you're buying something like R back when it was, let's say, a dime, every dollar is 10 more units. You see how that works. So this is why I say don't trip over Bitcoin to pick up Satoshis. In your mind, well, i got to pay this extra trading fee. What costs you less in the long run? Or Spirico's law of life, always be frugal, never be cheap. couple things to think about additionally here before we wrap this one up. Um, Number one, again, all exchanges will have a minimum deposit for each currency. 
Some have a minimum straight, like U.S. dollar value, at least 50 bucks. Some of them will say, this currency you have to deposit at least 0.1 or 1.0 or whatever. Make sure that you've met that amount. However, there is a remedy that doesn't always, but I know has worked for others when they've made this mistake. However, when you try to employ the remedy, make sure when you do it, that one will meet the minimum deposit. Don't try to make the two meet together. So I've seen people say, well, I had a minimum deposit on, on CoinEx, and I sent it over, and it says it's gone. And what they ended up doing was making another deposit, very important here, to the same address. Because some exchanges will let you pick a new address every time you make a new deposit, which is a generally a good security practice, okay? So we don't consolidate everything we're doing to one address on a public blockchain. That's why we do, why we do that. However, let's say that your minimum deposit was, I don't know, but let's say it was 40 bucks. And for some reason, you try to put 30 bucks in. And so now it's, it's not showing up. It's not there. A lot of, you sent it to that address. It's gone there. It is there. It's just they don't want to deal with it, right? Because they have said they make their money on fees, and if you're too low, they make no money on your trading. They're not doing this because they like you. They're do, like exchanges provide a service, right? You have to not think like a freaking woke child that believes that everything should be done for you. They provide you a service. They have to make a profit, or they can't afford to provide you the service. So they have a minimum. Basically, think of it as like a minimum buy. Like some places will say, we, we sell this thing for five bucks, but you gotta buy ten of them. Nobody loses their shit about that, right? Okay, so if you, if you make a second deposit exceeding the threshold, you'll probably get your original deposit back. Several people in our group on me, we have done that and have had that work out. Next, when people hear multiple trades, they start thinking taxation. And you should. But in this case, it kind of works for you because you're gonna lose a little bit of money. So now, you've gone to Coinbase, you've bought $200 worth of Bitcoin, you ended up getting, let's say, $198 because fees. So you just lost two bucks. You make the trade, maybe you lose another dollar, and by the time you execute the whole thing, maybe you're down three bucks, four bucks. That's what it costs you to get into this other coin that doesn't have to be, happen to be on Coinbase. You know what you do? Go ahead and report it. Go ahead and report it. They don't ask for, like, wallet numbers, account numbers, access. They just want to know, like, what did you do? I lost $4, capital loss. So that leads me to my next strategy. I'm all about not paying any taxes you don't have to pay. I also think not paying taxes on money that can easily be tracked is stupid, and it results in you being very unhappy and possibly sent to Club Fed, but if nothing else, having like your, your money garnished, your bank account seized. Like the, the, what the IRS can do is it's criminal, but they can So there are times when maybe you've done something like I did, which I kind of feel a little foolish about, but not really now, which is I sold some cryptocurrency last year to buy my badass sports car because I wanted one. Now, if I do the math, I don't want to think about how much a car really costs me now that I sold that crypto. But, you know, it was crypto that was available to be sold. Now, to do that, since Dodge would not take Bitcoin or Ethereum or anything like that, I had to convert to fiat, wire it to my bank account, and then write them a check. That's a paper trail. You do not not report that. They will eventually find you, and then they're going to like subpoena your records from any place they can find you with KYC. Then they're going to audit your bank account. They're going to look for deposits and withdrawals, etc. Right? So you don't want to go. You don't want that rubber-handed glove up your ass. So you report that. However, toward the end of the year, I looked at a position I was holding in Litecoin and going, you know, because I made a 
bad buy on that. It's a loss right now. Hmm. I wonder. I can lose like $3,000 if I sell my Litecoin right now. And then I looked at the correlation between Litecoin and Bitcoin being 98%, meaning if you look at the two of them historically, they track within 98% of each other. And thinking long-term, I was like, I'd rather be holding this money in Bitcoin anyway. So it was about $7,000 of Litecoin that I paid about $10,000 for. So what did I do? I deposited my Litecoin on Coinbase, where it's completely public and I can show transaction records if I'm questioned about it, right? I sold it, but I didn't actually sell it. I converted it. I converted it from Litecoin into Bitcoin. But Litecoin's done really well. Don't trip over Bitcoins to pick up Satoshis. Bitcoin actually did better. It actually did better. I would have been fine with it doing about the same, but it actually did better since the time I made the trade. So what happened was now I have an offsetting loss on some of my gains. That reduced my total capital gains tax on the trades that I had to report and pay taxes on. And I moved, all I did was move from one asset to another. But since the government says you can't do like-kind exchanges, you've realized a profit or a loss, I strategically realized the loss, reduced the amount of money those bastards get to steal from me, and I didn't do it illegally or nefariously. What did I tell you yesterday? The tax code is 5% what you have to do, and 95% how you get out of doing it. They wrote the code. It is far easier to avoid taxation legally than to do it illegally. Go look at the graphic from yesterday's video. That would be episode 82 of Miyagi Mornings. And you'll see that I used a picture of the entire United States tax code in two giant volumes that are, like, if you're old enough to remember, each of those volumes is bigger than, like, the phone book with yellow pages for a major metropolitan area. It's massive. And it's if you've ever looked at it, it's really fine print. Now, think about this. It doesn't take very much to tell you, hey, if you make X amount of money, you got to pay Y percent in taxes. These are the things that are taxable, and this is the way it works, right? It doesn't take very much. You could have a book. It would probably be about like this this right here, this this Baker Creek Seed, seed Catalog for those watching the video. This would probably be easily the entire tax code that tells you what you must pay. What do you think the rest of it is for? The rest of it is for the oligarchs, the technocrats, and the lobbyists that wrote the damn thing and handed it to Congress and said, this shall be the way you do things if you'd like a contribution to your PAC or your super PAC or whatever, to get out of it. So I just suggest you use the blueprint they gave you. Most people will never do this because they don't have capital gains in any significant way. They're not doing this type of thing. All they have is a financial advisor that sends them a statement. They don't really know, and so they get a little bit of offsetting gain or loss. But nobody's strategically thinking that way. Um, the other side of it is they don't own a business. You need to own a business. And you don't need to own, own a business so you can lose money. That's another thing. This is probably another episode, but I just want to finish with this. You don't go into business to lose money. You go into business to make money, but you go into business to convert much of your cash outflow from living expense to business expense to reduce your tax burden. That's one reason you go into business. That's an advantage of being in business. And it's people that think this way that are going to succeed in this world of things that are coming. And I just kind of wanted to point that out for you. Um, 
there's a lot of advantages out there for people that know how to focus on the 95%. That wraps up today's episode. Yes, it was two crypto episodes in a row. Yeah, it went longer than I planned on it going. But tomorrow and the next day, I promise we won't talk about cryptocurrency at all. Catch you on the next episode. Well, hello there, guys and gals out in interwebs land. It is time for another episode of Miyagi Mornings. Uh, I believe it's 94 today. I think that's right. I think I said 83 yesterday, but it was 93. Anyway, um, once again, I've gone to the well at MeWe. I've taken some questions and said, hey, what do you guys want to hear about? I put up three today, and the winner by a long shot in the poll, and I mean by a long shot, was monetizing your homestead life. So we're going to talk about that today. I am going to give you some ideas and some things you can do on your homestead, but I want to talk more about how to think about this because probably some of the best monetization ideas haven't really been thought of or used heavily yet, and you can always look at your homestead as what it is, which is unique. Your homestead's unique, you're unique, the community around you is unique, and the way that you can reach out to the larger community by selling online is also unique. So you need to be thinking about all this. But what I want to do with this in the beginning is let's start off thinking a little bit more like our ancestors. So we can think back to, and you know, my ancestors really don't fit in this group, but as an American, you know, this is my lineage as an American. My ancestors came over about the turn of the 18th, from the 1800s into the 1900s. But before that, we had this big Western settlement, right? And, and my, my grandparents did a lot of the type of thing I'm talking about on the homestead too, but I'm going back more to the, uh, the the land settling generation the people that went you know like there's not, it was like a you know what a tenth of the population of the country in, in in the cities that there is today and they're like this is too many people I want to go somewhere else and have my own opportunity and they went out and they got 40 acres you know uh, you think of Oklahoma like the Sooner State where you got there you had to pick your 40 acres first or whatever and they got this raw piece of land and we kind of think of it as they went out they got it they plowed it they planted corn and they went on with their lives and they became farmers and that, that was really what they did no 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 a, a man can't make a living on a cornfield today and he couldn't do it back then uh, either not alone that is the only thing that you did um the farmer even today is a mechanic he's an engineer he's a troubleshooter uh, he's a you know a vet a vet tech. I mean, like there's a, a hundred subdisciplines within that, and that's always been the case. It's, it, you go all the way back. Like one of the things you can really watch and learn a lot about the mindset of people that have lived this way for hundreds of years uh, is there's a documentary called Tales from the Green Valley that was done by the BBC. You can check that out. You probably find it here on YouTube uh, if you're on YouTube. And someday maybe I should really strip that all down and get it over on Odyssey, you know, because YouTube keeps like deleting it and shit for some unknown reason. I don't know why. Anyway, um, when our forefathers got this piece of land, they realized the value of what they had. And, and a big reason that a lot of them realized it is they were immigrants at the time. And they had come from a place where it was still almost impossible for you would, you would refer to at the time as a commoner to own land. You had to be a noble in a lot of the world to own land. You could lease it from a monastery. You could lease it from a nobleman. You could use what was called the commons. But you having your piece of land that you owned, that you could take everything from and use in any way you wanted and profit or fail with, that was new to these people. So they realized the value of what they had. I remember a story from a speaker. I don't remember who it was, but he was talking about a little girl getting on an airplane one time. 
you know, he's sitting there in first class, and this little girl gets on the airplane, and she looks back in the airport, or the airplane, and then she looks, and you can see because doors open. This is before 9-11. Doors open in the cockpit. You see all those bells and whistles, and all these adults had got on the plane just like, sit down, plane, put your stuff up in the overhead, and, and hopefully they'll bring you a drink, you know. The little girl got on there and went, God, just amazed. And he realized, like, she's right. The fact that we're on this machine that is going to transport us thousands of miles in mere hours and all of the things that go into that is, oh, but we don't see it anymore. And that's the difference between how our ancestors looked at a homestead, whether it was four acres or 40 acres or 400 acres versus what we do. They didn't just see it as a place to farm or to ranch. They saw it as an incredibly valuable asset, and they looked for side hustles. If you even think about really old TV shows before they ruined television, like um, Little House on the Prairie, for instance, you know, I remember one particular episode where Charles Ingalls, you know, he's got his little farmland and all, but he's making wagon wheels for somebody in his shop, and that's so he can make enough money for the things that they can't provide for themselves. This is the mindset we need to come at. So what are some things we can do to make money? I've talked about this a lot on Miyagi Mornings, but I really think seeds and plants are like printing money, right? And that was one of the other topics today, so I won't go too deep into it. But honest to God, like the fact that you can just take some plants that you're growing, especially perennials that root easily, root them, throw them in some pots, and then throw out an ad on Craigslist. Or, you know, next door is a great place to do this because they're all people that are relatively close to you. Hey, I have this so-and-so kind of plant. That I have, you know, and this is really an important thing. I have 20 available, right? I have 20 available, right? Even if you have 50, you know, maybe you say you have a little bit less than you do because if people think they can just get it any time, eh, I'll get that at some point. But, like, when they start seeing I'll take three from, from a neighbor, oh, I better get some. So that, that sense of scarcity, like that's just a marketing tactic. But, you know, I've sold, you know, 100 bucks easy with no real work and just like sweet potato slips before. That's an example. I have some ideas where I might be putting some packages of plants together that I might ship that are going to be like, you know, you know, an herbal tea garden in a four pack, you know, like four different easily rootable perennial herbs that are going to make tea from. Like, how many of those do you need to sell to make enough money to pay for, like, let's say, all your fertilizer for a year? And then that's no longer an expense, even though if you're doing it commercially, it is an expense because, well, that's fence post money. You see what I'm saying? Um, if you have any sort of skill set when it comes to building things, a lot of us in our home sets have some kind of shop or something like that. Start building something that you can sell. If you have, happen to have built a really great homestead, you know, reach out to things like the homeschool community and stuff like that. Maybe just tours. You know, and maybe you don't have to charge a lot of money to you know take five kids around your place and explain how everything works. Maybe it's a hundred bucks. Let me tell you something about homeschool families. A lot of them are quite affluent, and if they're putting together a group and they have four or five different families, a hundred bucks is no big deal, right? And it's a hundred bucks, and I guarantee they're going to pay you in cash. And more and more with homeschoolers, maybe they'll pay you in crypto, right? Like that's that's another idea. I'm not trying to talk about hitting home run grand slams here. With full-time income, what I'm talking about is function stacking a whole bunch of little things into something profitable. 
Um, sure, it probably isn't kosher with the uh, food uh, people, food police in your area, but there's no reason you can't be doing like on homestead uh, meals for a price. And if you're smart about the way you do it, you're not going to get shut down. If you're out marketing this every day on Facebook or something, sure. But if you are, you know, communicating locally, hey, we do like four of these a year, no one's going to bother you 99% of the time. You have to be smart about how you do it and who you're doing it with. You, In some ways, I know this is going to sound bad, right? but it's true because there's so much interference in our lives. We need to start thinking like a 1980s you know, drug dealer. And I'm not talking about the bad drug dealers not shooting people. I'm talking about the guy that was growing a few pot plants in some closets, and he was selling some pot for, for pocket money. That's what I'm talking about. You know what the rule was? You don't get high in your own supply. No, that guy got high in his own supply. I did it with him, okay? I'll, I'll be honest. I'm sure the statute of limitations is up on that long ago. Um, the rule was you only sold to people you know. You only sold to people you know. And you only sell small amounts. And that way, that guy, we all knew that guy. We all probably knew multiples of that guy. If you're my age and you're around in the 70s and 80s, right? That guy almost never, you don't know that that guy going to jail, do you? Because he was smart about it, right? And it's a lot. Well, that was a lot riskier than hey, having some people over for a steak, right? So that's another way that you can do things. And if you have a farm that's actually producing uh, animals, then maybe you could you can serve what you're producing. You can also be really clever about. It. Let me tell you how I sold chickens for fifty dollars a piece. Chickens, and I did no work as far as processing. Uh, I ran a processing workshop. And the way it worked is it was a hundred bucks to come, and you got you got to process two chickens. And I pasture raised my chickens, and then we taught students not using mechanized equipment like you know mechanized scalders and pluckers and things like that. We and, and we didn't even use killing cones. We used five gallon buckets, wood chips to catch the blood, some strings, slit the necks, put the bird in the in the in the bucket. And then we used just a pot. We just heated up over a propane thing, and we dunked our chickens, and we manually plucked them, and we gutted them, and we processed them, and everybody had a great time. Everybody had a great time. And really, I sold the chickens more like for a hundred bucks because here's how it worked: you process two, and you get to take one home with you, and you leave one behind. So we ended up with about uh, 25 students for that. The students all paid to do it. Half of them that had the right to take a chicken home didn't take a chicken home. They, they said, just keep it. I just wanted to learn. Uh, some of them had come in for another workshop, so they'd flown in, so it wasn't very practical. So we took the chickens that they gave back to us, so we actually even made more money per chicken, honestly, and then we let them go through the rigor process and all. And the next day at a different workshop, when most of those students were still here because it was like an add-on, we cooked the chicken that they processed on farm for everybody. So that covered the cost of that meal for all the students more than the cost of that. And then we still put about 25 chickens in our deep freezer that somebody else processed for us and paid us for the privilege of doing it. Now, can you do that you know, once a week all year long? I doubt it. I doubt it. But see, that's... Boom, that's a drop, and it's done. And back to the government interfering with things. The government tends to be reactionary. So Karen Karen calls the cops, right? Now Karen calls the cops. So cop calling Karen, calls the cops, says this thing's going on over here. So then the cops come. 
Maybe. Depending on where you live. If you live where I live, the sheriff's department's like, we don't have time for your bullshit, Karen. I mean, literally, that is the response they'll get for something like that. But let's say they do show up. They're going to show up a day or two after this is done. What are you talking about? There's nothing going on here. Well, you can't do that anymore. Do what? Have people over to my house to have a meal? Really? I can't do that? Well, yeah. okay, sure. And then think about how you handle your next thing. Like that's We have to start thinking this way. I'm tired of people saying, well, they won't let me. Quit being a damn pussy. Start figuring out how you can. You, if you have a homestead of any significant size, acre, two, three, four, you have a tremendous opportunity. You can sit around worrying about what they won't let you do, or you can figure out how to do what you want. And you should be able to, my opinion is, you should be able to basically make your homestead pay for the inputs. That's all I'm looking for out of this. Now, if you want to end up making a lot more income or whatever, you have to start being a little more strategic because you do have the department of making you sad that shows up and causes you problems. But, I mean, God, sometimes I wonder, like, how do we sit around with so much admiration for our founders who, when the British taxed them for a small portion of tea they were told they had to buy, threw it in the damn water started tarring and feathering tax collectors and fought a revolution for independence over very minuscule taxes on their labor and their spending. And now we have people like, well, I have a homestead, but I, I, can't, I can't do any of these things because the government might, keyword might, do something about it. You know who that person is? If you're that person, let me tell you who you really are. You're a person that was never going to do it anyway. You're a person that's never going to do it anyway. We don't sit around waiting for permission to do shit. And if you got permission, you probably wouldn't. If the government, whoever they are to you, wrote you a letter and said, uh, we, have, we have approved your request to do this thing, whatever it is, go ahead. Most of you would find another reason not to. It's a toolbox fallacy, repackaged. Some excuse not to. If you own land, it can make you money. And whatever you're doing to it for yourself, you should be able to figure out how to pay for that cost of input. That's step one. If you can do that, you're far and away ahead. Next step, you decide where you want to take your next level of income from. But that's why I want you guys thinking about this. I've done everything from selling goldfish for 50 bucks. I'm talking like a 16-cent feeder goldfish, two years in one of my ponds, big and beautiful, call it an Asian heirloom carp and put it on Craigslist to selling sweet potato slips, to selling chickens and eggs and ducks and, you know, everything in between. We've run chickens, we've hatched chickens, we've grown chickens to 12 weeks of age, and, you know, said so basically they'll start laying within the next eight weeks and sold them as well-started pullets, and we made more money selling them than you can make selling a chicken for meat, right? We only raised, we only, you know, kept them on the grass for another extra three weeks. And every week they didn't sell, we raised the price to cover the cost of the next week. We've made hundreds of dollars that way. We've raised turkeys. The way we did turkeys, we got really big, broad-breasted bronze turkeys. And we said, if you want to buy a turkey, you have to reserve your turkey in the spring. We'll have them ready about Thanksgiving time when everybody wants them. Come pick up your turkey alive. Take your turkey and get it processed. Weigh it and pay us on the dressed weight per pound. We sold every single one we had. Everybody paid in cash. We did no work. The only thing I did was take my own turkeys in to have them processed because I don't want to process turkey. It's too much work. And we were growing turkeys that were dressing out at like 30 and 40 pounds. 
there's always a way if you adapt to the situation. And there's always a way like value add. Well, how much value do you want to add? Because value add means your labor. Can you get your customer to do some of the work for you? Can you minimize your interaction with your customer? It's not like I don't want to talk to my customers, but I have a life. I have things I have to do. Having somebody come with a box, throw two turkeys in it, and leave, and then send me the money after the fact, you know, and how many people rip me off? None. Do business with people you trust. Do business with people you know. Anyway, with that, it's been another episode of Miyagi Mornings. We'll be back with something different tomorrow. Well, hey there, guys and gals. Jack here with the final episode of Miyagi Mornings for the week. Uh, so I'm not confused about the number now. It is 95 because it always has to end in a five or a zero until I screw up and don't have a full five-day week with Miyagi Mornings, which will probably never happen. If there's ever a week I can't do five, I'll, I'll probably not do them at all that week because my OCD just will not allow that. Anyway... We're going to talk about websites today. We're not going to talk about cryptocurrency, but I, I have to at least say, you know, Pirate Chain is now a, a billion-dollar asset and broke into the top 50, and I told you when it was $0.08 cents to buy it. But you told me it was Tulomania or whatever. Eh, whatever. It's uh, $13.66 right now, and the island of Jackistan is beginning to come into my mental view at some point. Anyway, We're going to talk about making money today, but not with cryptocurrency, good old-fashioned business, side hustle type stuff, small business, mom and pop level business, and we're going to talk about how a website and domain name fits into that. So somebody in the MeWe uh, thread on this said, you know, basically I have a small business. I don't remember if it was a handyman business or what. Let's just say it was, because that's fine. Like, it doesn't matter what it is. But it's basically a local business. It's not somebody that is going to be shipping you know, widgets to Sheboyganville. It would be if they are in Sheboyganville, they live in Sheboyganville, and they, they're going to do work in Sheboyganville, that type of thing. So the question was, first of all, do I even need a website? And I don't know that you need one, but you probably should have one, because if I'm looking for Bill's handyman service in Sheboyganville, and I don't know how to get in touch with Bill, but somebody's told me about Bill, or I worked with Bill before, but I lost his number, that type of thing, you know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to Google, and I'm going to go Bill's Handyman Service, and I'm going to be like, oh, shit, there's a lot of Bill's Handyman Services out there. I don't know which. Bill's Handyman Service, Sheboyganville. Boom, and I, I'm going to expect that I would find you. And then I'm going to find you, and I'm going to contact you and say, hey, I need my gutters cleaned or whatever it is, right? So, yeah, I think you need that. I think you need to make sure you're like, set up with Google local and all, and I can't turn this into an online marketing lesson today. That's way too deep uh, to go into in a short video. But you, you do need to learn basic SEO. And while there's not a huge amount of direct effect on the search engines through the what's called the title and description tag, you need to figure out how to do that. And if you're using WordPress, and you should, like all-in-one SEO or Yoast SEO, anything like that will help you be able to do that really easily and kind of give you some guidance on it. And, uh, you know, you need to have, like, then Bill's Handyman Service Sheboyganville, Illinois, if it fits, or IL, or whatever fits in those 60 characters. Sheboyganville's a pretty big word. It's a town I made up out of nowhere, just for the record. And, yeah, I know there's a Sheboygan. Everybody's like, but there is a Sheboygan. I said Sheboyganville. It's a, it's a joke off of uh, an Adam Sandler movie. I believe the town that was created in that one was Westchesterton Fieldville. Anyway, it's just a made-up place. So, yeah, you... You, you, you have to make sure that you're optimized for the things that people look for. Your web domain name. If you can get something really clever and cute that people remember, fine. Those are harder and harder to come by today. You know, if I was Bill's handyman service, 
And that's what I called myself, and that's what everybody called me. And maybe that wouldn't be the name I'd pick, but if I did, and if I could get BillsHandymanService.com, I would do that. It's a really long domain, but it's what people are going to look for in your local market once they're aware of you. And if you have that and basic on-page SEO in such a low competitive term, there's not people trying to do that on purpose, maybe one or two external links into your site, you're going to rank for that. Google, Bing, Yahoo, whatever the hell else people use, you're going to, you're going to rank there. Um, where should you get your domain name? I almost don't care. I really don't care. Like As long as you're not using some scam artist that's charging $50 for a, a basic .com domain or something like that, it, it really doesn't matter. Um, where should you get your hosting? Um, I would consider hosting with HostGator. I really like them for small sites like this. They're inexpensive, and they have good support. Bluehost, just about anybody that's, that's out there who I wouldn't use, and I would use them for a domain name. If, if you know you didn't have another place to do it or whatever, I wouldn't get all hairy about using them for a domain, but GoDaddy. GoDaddy is going to try to sell you on their site builder, and their site builder is effing garbage. It's junk. Do not use it. And then you're going to build your site on GoDaddy, and then you're going to find out like all the little basic SEO shit that you should be able to do. They're going to lock the search engines out of your site. They're going to lock down your ability to optimize your site, and then they're going to charge you more money to open it up, which is just ignorant and stupid, and you shouldn't do it. Your website should be built on WordPress, but that's a blogging platform. It can be any kind of website. When you set up a WordPress site, you can say, make this my homepage. You can call it home. You have Bill's Handyman service and basically a homepage and whatever, and about us to contact us and any other pages you want. But your website for a small business like this should probably be about four to five pages, a basic kind of little mini online brochure, who you are, how you got started, things like that. You can optimize if you have like an area where you're in like, you know, a town, but you're in like town A, but like you serve town A, town B, town C, town D, etc. Like you have a coverage area, then each page optimize the main idea of your thing for that town. Because again, it's very, very low competition for that. Again, this is basic SEO. You can teach yourself this in a day. Uh, I, I'm not going to go through a tutorial on it, but That's just one way to think about this. I do think everybody should have a blog, right? Even if there's only four or five posts on it. So when you set your site up, you can have one of your links be blog, and it will be the normal blog feed you see on a website. How I would do it if I were one of these people. Do not let this be part of your toolbox fallacy. Like, I can't start building my business till I handle, have this. Spend some damn money. Get somebody that makes up some basic, simple, decent graphics for you. Put the website together for you. You give them the content, they put it on there, and then you get in the back end of WordPress and start looking shit up on YouTube to figure out how to do the things you need to do. Have them create a page for you that's a blog. Put in a few posts about some things. And then, while you're building your presence, so let's say you are a handyman, you build a deck, you should take a picture of it. As long as your customer doesn't have a problem, I take a picture of it. If you build it, and then you put rails around it, and then you stain it, Take a picture through the progress. Put it on, you know, it, whatever your social media is you're using. But the way I would do that, then make a, a post on your blog, add those pictures, a little bit of commentary. This is something you can do like, extremely fast and start building a book of business on your blog. And then instead of putting that on Facebook or MeWe or Float or whatever, put it on your blog and share the post. Keep doing that, because what's going to happen then is when somebody says to you, well, have you ever done a deck before? Even when you're in real life. Now your website is a sales tool. 
It is a sales tool that's standalone that talks to a customer you don't know about yet that's a lead, but you're standing in front of a customer and you just did gutters for their house. And they're like, well, we've been thinking about getting a deck. Have you ever done a deck before? As a matter of fact, and start scrolling through your blog. There's a deck, there's a deck, there's a deck. Okay, now you have a track record. You're building your portfolio on your site. Now your site has value. You see how this works, and it doesn't matter what you do. Right? If you have something where you're directly providing a service to customers and they give you testimonials, hey, can I write that down? Can I take a picture of you? Whatever. You know? And here it is. Can I put publish on my site? You can, you can log into your blog, do that shit right there on your phone, and go you know, basically save draft and show them what it'll look like. Are you okay with this? Is there anything you want me to change? No? Publish. And you, on the fly, are building your portfolio. If you, if you sell a product people consume and they really like it and their kids are happy or whatever, they have a picture of them eating it. Right? If you do, if you do stuff like, if you have a little farm like I do, when you see your ducks doing some crazy shit, take a picture, make a little note, and instead of just throwing that shit on Instagram, throw it on your site. If you want to throw it on Instagram too, I don't care, but put it on your site. Build that thing so that when somebody looks up Bill's Handyman Service or Jack's Duck Farm or whatever, they can see that there's more to it than just your random average crap four-page site. Make sure they can contact you. Do not hate money. Let me say it again. Do not hate money. You should have a great big contact link. And in spite of that, like your phone number or preferred method of contact should be like at the bottom of every page. Every page. Every page. Every freaking page. You don't get any money until somebody says, hey, I want to do business with you. And there are people that this is how they think. They get to your website. Con Screw it. They look for somebody else. It's that fast. It's I can't figure out how to do business with this person. I'm going elsewhere. I mean, I, I've literally, in mocking websites that I wanted to do business with, I've been on the, like, with my freaking wallet in my hand going, take my money. Take my freaking money. How do I do, how do I do this with you? How do I give you money? And then I go, they don't want my money, and I leave. It happens all the time. Make contact and doing business with you easy. Make sure you're building a portfolio on that blog section of your site. Use WordPress. If you're not someone that knows how to set up websites, give somebody 500 bucks that has a track record of setting up websites like this to set up a basic website for you. Don't sit fiddle-farting around worrying about is it exactly the right color of blue? Uh, is it okay if I have a hyphen in my domain name? If you are a site like this, where your main purpose of a website is just to have a track record and a way for people to find you, don't overthink it. You can always make it better later. You can always make it better later. But get these basics down. Stay away from GoDaddy for hosting. Do not use anybody's freaking site builder. One more time, don't use anybody's freaking site builder. Not Wix, not any of that shit. They always have all this nickel and dime shit to keep uploading, you know, keep upping you in price and cost, etc. Get basic hosting, get WordPress installed on it, and literally anything you'll ever want to do on a site this size, including like taking online payments, etc. There's either free or cheap things called plugins. Boom, bam, bing, done. And if you can't figure it out, since it's WordPress and everything on WordPress runs with a, what's called a MySQL database and PHP programming, Every third person who has any idea how to do anything online with programming, development, integration, NoSQL, and, and, and PHP. And I would say it's probably two out of three people. Like you might have some guys that specialize in like Cold Fusion or Ruby on Rails or something like that. Freaking every programmer knows how to use WordPress. Every programmer knows how to code in PHP. Every programmer knows how to, to, to reach down into to like MySQL and, and, and code SQL databases. And you don't even have to anyway because everything is so – there's so much stuff 
for WordPress. You want a, a website that does all the shit Facebook does? They have a plugin for that. I can't remember what it's called now, but it's like a buddy press. Right? And literally, you can make your own mini Facebook like that. If you can do that and you're worried about, well, how do I take a deposit for materials in my handyman business? <laughs> Easy. WooCommerce, boom, bang, boom, done. And there's even plugins to take, dare I say it, cryptocurrency. So WordPress, pay someone to do the basic setup, learn how to make blog posts, build a track record, Don't use site builders. Stay away from GoDaddy for hosting. Stay away from Wix for hosting. Don't do that shit. Buy a domain name that uses as close to what people would look for you as possible. Again, we're not trying to sell telecommunications services to the world. We're talking about local business. That's what I got for you this week. Hope you enjoyed this. And if you are, if you are hodling pirate chain, R baby R, take care. I will be back with you next week. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap. Remember, I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. All subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series.